Welcome to the Magnificast Lock-In. You're locked in. Some of you once again, some of you for the first time with us, your youth pastors. Uh, I'm your youth pastor, Dean. And I'm uh, your youth pastor, Matt. This time around, we are going to post this one in our regular podcast feed. So if you've never heard this before, this is the podcast that we do behind the paywall at our Patreon, which you can access by going to patreon.com slash the Magnificast. And we usually do it once a week. It's a different vibe from the Magnificast. It's a little goofier, a little sillier. Um, Let's see. The fiction of it is that this is our big youth group that Matt and I do run. And there are some surreal elements to it that I guess you can discover as you go along. Um, It's like any other youth group lock in. Uh, You come, you play the games, you put as many marshmallows as you can in your mouth. Uh, You try your best not to throw up. And at some point you do get a sermon. Uh, In our case, it's usually a a sermon dealing with some of the common questions that we find on Reddit, r slash r Christianity, just questions about your Christian life. And then we usually wrap it up with uh, some current events so that you know what the Lord wants you to do in this world. Uh, Pastor Matt, am I leaving anything out that might help a a new listener to this uh, podcast get oriented? I think that all sounds pretty good. I think um, (laughs) your explanation of the fiction does tell you how immersive the fiction is. Uh, We do have to explain it. That's how you know you're really into it. Um, But yeah, it's, it's great. So usually people only get this podcast if they're giving us some Patreon money. But this week we're, we're, uh, we're spreading the good word <laughs> in, in the main feed. I think because the episode that we post this week is probably such a downer, but that's okay. Uh, so listen to this one and uh, get fed spiritually, I guess, <laughs> with whatever we're doing here. Spiritually, materially, you can eat whatever you want. We won't know. <laughs> you can eat, you could probably eat this podcast. We've tried real hard. Um, all right. Well, Dean, let's get right to it here. The youths, they're asking so many questions these days, and they are uh, they got a lot of spiritual struggles. And here's a here's a good one for you. Um, This one is actually, it's two years old, but it's still a really good one. It's titled, I Saw Something. I'm intrigued. Reel me in. (laughs) I just want to make something clear. I am and will always be a Christian, but I know I saw some ghosts. Some of my family and I went down to Gettysburg and I took a picture of a Confederate soldier at where Pickett's Charge occurred. Okay. (laughs) They were were marching in full equipment and had muskets. (laughs) There's a problem. Good or bad. That's very important. Yeah, it's true. Um, also, I don't know why these Civil War soldiers have had muskets, but um, all right, fair enough. Anyways, this occurred at 11 a.m. on Thursday. <laughs> Later, we met a park ranger, and when I asked whether there were reenactors in the field, he said, I don't think so. I believe I saw ghosts, and I know saying this, I will get a lot of flack, but I don't care. I believe they are either trap souls, or maybe their souls were just imprinted here. I do not believe in witchcraft or whatnot, and I know it's a sin to try and use ghosts to tell the future. But I know what I saw. So, right. <laughs> this one, uh, this one is less of a question, more of a statement about ghosts, Dean. But I do got to ask you, uh, what did this person see? Were they ghosts? Why right. did they have muskets? And what were these ghosts doing out at 11 a.m. on a Thursday? It's so early in the day for these ghosts. It is. It is. I'm just trying to get all my facts straight here. So no to witches, yes to ghosts, no to using ghosts to tell the future. And the park ranger didn't think there were reenactors. You got it. That's all. That's it all. Yeah. These are the rules by which this person has convinced themselves that they did see a ghost at 11 a.m. Sorry, one more piece here. They they were either trapped souls or their souls were imprinted there. So imprinted. One of the two. Yeah, yeah. 
Right, 3D printed <laughs> directly on. Um, I think, uh, all right, let's answer this two ways together. One is, let's assume it was a ghost, and in the other, let's assume that uh, it wasn't. So in the scenario that it was a ghost, um, at 11 a.m. for a soldier who died in the Civil War to be wandering around Gettysburg uh, in broad daylight and able to be photographed, I feel like that's a ghost that wants to be found, mm-hmm. a ghost that wants to be seen. Yeah. And uh, in that case, I mean, if you're going to see a ghost, I guess it would have to be one like that. I mean, the, the conditions are ideal. This ghost is uh, trying their hardest uh, to be caught on film. So congrats, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, Matt. What do you think? Uh, if it was a ghost, um, what are the conditions operative by which that would make everybody sense? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't. I OK, so this person believes that they are trapped there or their souls are imprinted. Right. I think that the souls being trapped there makes a lot of sense. Their souls are trapped there. They have muskets. They're out during the day. They want you to see them and their Confederate soldiers. Uh, I think it is your duty as a Christian to confront them about their uh, about right. their various sins, probably. True. That's true. Maybe that's what's keeping them uh, holding them back. Um, if they're not uh, a ghost, though, which I think is likely. And I want to hmm, say really? uh, the re- the reason that is, is because the specific phrasing of the park ranger, I don't think so, is not a no. That's true. It's really important that it isn't no. <laughs> that is true. The person asks uh, whether or not they were there were reenactors around, and they said, "I don't think so." So they could have just been other people. Um, yeah, I think either way, though, the answer is that you do have to evangelize to them. Of course, obviously. Why would you even go out in public if you weren't going to do? Especially that? to Gettysburg, because um, people there they yeah. desperately need to know about uh, Jesus. Uh, it's <laughs> that's where people go when they're asking those big questions about their lives. That's right. And then you can say you gave your own Gettysburg address. You can hold on to that for a long time and uh, you'll have saved somebody's souls. And that's going to be pretty important. Mm -hmm. They won't be trapped Um, there anymore. They'll want to get away from you as fast as possible. (laughs) Uh, All right. Let me give you one, Matt. This uh, title is simply Christian Zoom Rooms. Okay. Um, are there any sites I can find that have lists of open Christian Zoom meetings? I thought that would be very interesting to drop in and chat with people about faith, God, etc. So, of course, Matt, I don't know. Uh, my guess is probably you don't know all the sites that have open Christian Zoom meetings. But what would you want to find if you were going to enter a Christian Zoom room? What could our teens in this lock-in uh, look forward to in finding the right kind of Christian Zoom room? Oh, man. Um, you go into the Christian Zoom room. I mean, you know exactly who's going to be there. There's going to be a guy playing guitar off mute. <laughs> True. And it's going to be awful. Um, someone in the chat is going to be camera off, but they are asking for prayer requests. Right, right. And a lot of a lot of just horny Christian singles ready to mingle, I think. It's probably the rest of them. Yeah, a lot of pretty dangerous private chats going on <laughs> uh, while this guy is playing his great guitar. You could not pay um, me to go into this, to this Christian Zoom room that I've just invented, but... Uh, wow, you wouldn't have to pay me, I gotta say. What a great... Uh, <laughs> anthropology project <laughs> did you ever go to uh did you ever go to christian chat rooms on yahoo messenger uh not on yahoo messenger but on a number of sort of uh i don't know in the in the 2000s there were all kind of websites that were like half forum and half chat rooms yeah. i couldn't even remember what they are but yes anywhere anywhere there were a bunch of christians talking uh i was there yeah 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 well anyways i that's um, my Zoom. My Christian Zoom room is loosely based off of the Christian chat rooms <laughs> yeah, on right. Yahoo. That's <laughs> right, right. 
well, good luck to this person finding Christian Zoom rooms. Um, one last thing I think you would definitely find in such a Zoom room would have to be at least uh, one troll who's like... Oh, yeah, of course. There to cause trouble, but also wants to be perceived as somebody who's just like willing to, you know, always be sort of up for debate or up for a discussion. Uh, and so that person is looking for the apologetics uh, person who's bound to show up it's, at some point. It's true. It's just like the Bible says, wherever two or three are gathered, there's one <laughs> atheist with just uh, just trying to ask honest questions, you know, trying to get a That's better right. understanding. We're- Wherever two or three are gathered, there's one debate. There, there's tr- always one guy that doesn't want to debate you. All right, that's good. Hey, here's a real a real tough one from the teens, Dean. Where's the Ark of the Covenant? <laughs> right. Okay, the, the user goes on to write, I'm not trying to be conspiratorial or whatnot and stir up some crazy theories, but if you believe that the history of Israel in the Bible is true, then what happened to the Ark? The last known recording of it, if I recall correctly... <laughs> was free Babylon Exodus in 586 BC. All that being said, it seems just to have disappeared from the text, never being mentioned again. I've heard theories about it being in places like Ethiopia, in Egypt, or buried in caves around Jerusalem, but nothing has ever come of it besides an Indiana Jones movie. So, where's the Ark? Where is it, Dean? Right. Where is it? Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I think it just got lost in the shovel. I, I mean, you know, these people are moving around all the time. Um, and it's a lot to keep track of. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, it's got a lot of pieces to it. And at some point, it's just like, you know, you have to imagine the one guy who is responsible for, like, carting that thing around just thought, if I have to move all this stuff one more time, uh, I'm leaving it. I can't. This is the one thing that's not going on the truck. And, uh, you know, I haven't opened it up in a year. If I didn't need it all last year, I probably don't need it now. It's staying staying behind. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. You know, when um, recently I, I moved, my family moved. We went to a, we moved to a new house. It was great, but the entire time we were moving, there was like this one box that's just like, man, I'll get to it. You know, like I don't want to get that one yet. I'll get to it later. And I kind of imagine it could be the same thing. Like we'll get to it, yeah. and then and then you do leave behind. That's true. Right. Um, in the comments, really importantly, someone says actually in Second Maccabees two, it states that Jeremiah hid it before the Babylonian exile of the Jews, and then it goes on to some length to tell me about Jeremiah and he's hiding this ark. And then someone else says um, the only thing I'll I'm sorry, actually the OP, the original poster, they say the only thing I will say is that Maccabees isn't a part of the canon, so I will discredit this. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Yep. So we did have yeah, we had man. an answer, but uh, actually it's uh, the wrong answer according to this person. I love. Uh, I heard it was in Ethiopia. I heard it might have been in Egypt. Um, anyway, this book, uh, I'm not even going to entertain that one. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, I've heard a lot of things about it on the History Channel, um, and uh, I'm willing to believe those things, but not something called Second Maccabees. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, I'll give you one last question here that I have. This is: Is it okay to wear a cross necklace if I'm not a Christian? Uh. And the body says, I'm slowly integrating into a Christian lifestyle and accepting the Christian ways. <laughs> Is it OK for me to wear a cross necklace to feel more committed to the faith, even if I'm not baptized or entirely Christian yet? The necklace is just a tiny cross, nothing flashy or over the top. So, Matt, as this person slowly integrates into their Christian lifestyle in this very patient conversion, uh, can they wear a cross necklace? Yeah, I think you got to. <laughs> <laughs> as much as it pains me to say, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're making that conversion, you know, it's a big life choice where you are accepting a religion that a lot of people already do accept and kind of just the cultural <laughs> norm. It's a big it's a big one. 
yeah, I think that that's probably the place to start. You know, you got to get used to it because, uh, you know, you don't want to just jump in all at once, right? You don't want to jump in. No. Um, you're... Uh, you, you don't want to jump in wearing a, a breadcrumb and fish shirt, a, a, a cross <laughs> necklace, a, uh, a a Reese's peanut butter hat, uh, a Reese's peanut butter cup hat that does say Jesus <laughs> instead of Reese's on it. You don't want to do all of that at once because it's too much. It's a shock to your system. And frankly, uh, your body might reject all of it. You don't know. You don't know how it will react. So I think that you start off with the cross necklace. And then slowly, uh, over time, you can you can kind of don more Christian apparel. And uh, by the time I think you get to the end of it, and you have like a you have like a pair of short gym shorts that say "Holy" across the butt, I think that your body will be acclimated <laughs> enough that everything's going to work out just fine. Yeah, the next thing you know, you'll be cosplaying as a chibi Larry boy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's where this leads, I think. Um, yeah, that sounds right to me. Uh, my biggest thing about this whole question is just the, the sort of pace of conversion. Uh I don't know how one slowly integrates into a Christian lifestyle, but I do love that. I love the intentionality of it. You know, it's like, uh, I don't want to go too quickly. Um, maybe I'll just start small. I'll, I'll wear the necklace, see how that feels. Can I, you know, does it work for me? I think more people ought to, uh, you know, ease their way into Christianity that way. I agree. You know, there are so many of these conversion stories out there where people make a split second decision and they change their entire life. And it's like, are you sure? Maybe you should slow down a little bit. Um, yeah, you just heard about the Bible 10 minutes ago and now you're a Christian. (laughs) I don't know about that. Maybe you should just he's back <laughs> yeah yeah instead of having the uh testimony where it's like yeah i was uh rock bottom living in the gutter and someone gave me a tract and i heard <laughs> kurt cameron's voice and boom i was a christian uh and every, everybody claps at the end of that one i really want the testimony that's like you know i thought long and hard about it um i started wearing a necklace uh i read a, a left behind book you know it took me kind of a while because i'm pretty busy but i did get to the end of it and i thought it was fine i mean i didn't have anything to say that was bad about it and uh i talked to a few other folks i went to church uh kind of just here and there once a month and next thing you know uh now i i guess i'm a christian that's the testimony i want to hear it's pretty good um you know evangelicals though the problem is that is that if you die and you're just slowly integrating, you're in trouble. Right, right. You're in trouble. It's like, where do you even go? That's evangelical purgatory. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Well, I think, um, listen, just like that person was not willing to even entertain the idea of Second Ma- Maccabees, the book in the Bible, <laughs> I'm actually not going to even uh, entertain the idea of evangelicals right now. So I'm just going to skip over that whole that whole thing I did just introduce. I think it's great. Fair enough. Just slowly, just just deep your toes in, maybe. And dip them back out. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> dip them in, dip them out. At some point, you are going to dip them into holy water, and bam, you'll be in the club. So uh, watch out. See, that is the thing. Um, now I'm thinking about it more. It's like, you know, Luke, lukewarm Christians, God will spit you out of his mouth. Um, but, like, what if you're going to be hot later, you know? Right, right. That's the thing. It's like the hot tub's too hot for now. but It'll cool down and be very pleasant. Yeah, or, you know, you'll adjust. Uh, it won't feel so hot when you kind of slowly, you know, get your body in there piece by piece. You wouldn't just jump in cannonball into a hot tub. That's bad news. You wouldn't. All right, let's be done with this. Let's do something different. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm done. Okay. Uh, let me give you one current event story. Sure. Um, hey, sorry, for and- first-time listeners of The Lock-In, this is the part where we do 
current events. So the first part is right. where we do goofy questions from Reddit, and the second part is where we do current events. Sorry, that's what we're doing now. Yeah, that's right. And this is still the walk-in, and you are all still gathered around us, your youth pastors, and no, you can't leave. Uh, and if you have to go to the bathroom, we suggest you hold it. Um, okay, there is uh, another bummer of a story, I guess. Um, so I know that we are putting this in the feed to kind of lift the spirits after the huge bummer of talking about climate change for an hour. Um, but this is a bummer of a different kind. And I brought a second one to talk about later that is related. That is not so much of a bummer. So I feel like I've, I've earned the, the bummer article. Um, it is called a sanctioned crisis and it's in Commonweal magazine. Uh, it is by, um, Joy Gordon, who's a professor at the university of Chicago and it's all about the blockade against Cuba. Uh, it's really well done. Joy Gordon wrote a book that I have not read, but have been meaning to read about sanctions against um, Iran, I think it is. Anyway, all that to say, she has a lot to say about sanctions in general and has done a lot of research on it. And I think this is a really great article because if you're on the left, probably in the last month and a half, you've been hearing lots of stuff about the blockade against Cuba. Uh, but even if you're not on the left, um, it's been in the news. And I think that it's actually hard to kind of get your head around what it is. Uh, the blockade, people in Cuba refer to it as a blockade. Um, it's sort of like a mishmash of legal sanctions that have piled up over time since the early 1960s and then kind of like went into overdrive in the 90s. So the article is good because it's like a good historical narrative that kind of just tells you the story of you know, where we are and what these sanctions do. But I want to read um, something kind of in the beginning of the article that sort of sets the tone. And uh, I thought it was really well said. Um, so she says, it is certainly the case that the pandemic has had a huge impact on Cuba and that state policies of various kinds may also have played a significant role in Cuba's economic situation. But more needs to be said about the U.S. sanctions, which are nearly comprehensive indiscriminate and quite devastating not only to every aspect of cuba's economy but also to the daily lives of the 11 million people living on the island they are also nearly insurmountable even if the government responded with singular efficiency and resourcefulness it would be impossible to find adequate workarounds for u.s efforts to block cuba's imports and exports its access to fuel capital and equipment critical for its infrastructure and its ability to, to engage with the international banking network any one of these forms of systemic damage would be crippling on its own. Together, they have ensured a catastrophic level of harm affecting every sector upon which the economy and human well-being are reliant. Uh, what I think is really important about putting it that way is in the news, there have been all kinds of people trying to deflect from the sanctions. And in fact, Biden actually added sanctions. Uh, when he was campaigning, he said he was going to roll back the sanctions that Trump had placed on Cuba and possibly move back to a more Obama-era policy. But again, instead, he added uh, sanctions. And I think it's really significant because people try to deflect that by saying, well, uh, the Cuban state mismanaged its economy, or, uh, I don't know, the coronavirus is hitting it really hard, or it's an authoritarian regime, or a thousand other things. But at the end of the day, uh, it is the U.S. blockade that is primarily responsible in a, you know, in an unparalleled qualitative way for the damage that's done in Cuba and for the challenges that the Cuban people face, which are real. The challenges are real. Uh, so anyway, I just really appreciate that tone being set around the conversation. 
And uh, I commend that article to folks um, who want to learn more about what the blockade is, what it's made up of, and and how it works. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important to learn some things about the blockade. Um, I've been reading this past week uh, this book called Manufacturing the Enemy um, by Keith Bolander, who is uh, like a journalist and a really good media critic where he's just kind of looking at the... um, uh, the way that the narratives around uh, Cuba from the United States has worked out. And I think, um, man, learning about the blockade is so important because very little uh, journalism that you read from the United States about Cuba um, will contain um, interviews or perspectives from people who have actually been to Cuba or talking to real Cubans. <laughs> um, most of the time, it's just like information kind of filtered through the government or filtered through like the Cuban diaspora in Miami or whatever, which is um, problematic for a whole lot of reasons. Anyways, all let's say like learning about the embargo um, or the blockade, whichever you'd like to call it, I suppose, is really important because it is a, I mean, basically terrorism. I don't know. I don't know what else to really call it. It's like um, it's a it's a government trying to beat another government into submission by like basically trying to starve them in different ways. So. Um, it's really awful, but anyways, a really important thing to do, uh, learn about it. Yeah. I think too, it's hard to know what to do in any situation when it comes to global solidarity, because these are big problems and we're just individual people if we're not part of collective action and so on. And and our collective ability is not uh, strong enough to make a lot of demands, but the, you know, action around the sanctions on Cuba is really significant, I think. And it's important to tell your congresspeople what you think about them, uh, to tell Joe Biden what you think about them, to tell your local Democrat that, you know, you will not just keep voting for people who keep people suffering in Cuba and so on. Uh, that is like one measurable thing that can be done. The whole world is against the sanctions, except for Israel, basically. And, you know, Israel in the U.S., that is. And I think that really matters. And uh, so, you know, it's a bummer. It's a bummer article because the blockade is very bad. But I guess the silver lining to it is people are talking about it and figuring it out and publishing it in places like Commonweal (laughs) and elsewhere. And uh, it's really, really important to just be getting that story out and saying that, you know, at the end of the day, this is a problem made by the United States. And that's the end of the conversation, really. You know, we can have all the other conversations maybe after that gets sorted out, but uh, not before. Yeah, that's right. That's the the first and only demand that people in the United States should be making. Um, okay, let me tell you about an article about something that happened this week, but has also been happening forever. <laughs> um, okay, this is, uh, it's actually a report um, that was issued by the Economic Policy Institute, um, written by Lawrence Michelle and Joy Kandra, and it was published on August 10th, so that's cool. Very recent. Anyways, the, uh, oh, I guess I'll say this too. If you don't know what the Economic Policy Institute is, it's like a progressive liberal-leaning, left-leaning think tank uh, that works a lot with unions and little, like labor organizations and stuff. It is a cool place. Um, I didn't know how interested I was in economics until I started reading it. There you go. Um, that and the monthly review. Those are the two things that made me interested in economics, which are wild. They're two very disparate sources, <laughs> very different from one another. <laughs> but anyways, uh, the Economic Policy Institute released a report, though, that I thought was pretty fascinating. It isn't telling me anything I don't know already, but it is giving me a lot of numbers and some, uh, I think, some handles to think about uh, inequality within wealth a lot more critically. Um, the report is called this. The CEO pay has, I'm sorry, 
The report is called CEO pay has skyrocketed 1,322% since 1978. And the the subtitle here is CEOs are paid 351 times as much as a typical worker in 2020. Um, So generally the report is about how much more CEOs are paid than uh, average workers at uh, any kind of given uh, company. And I mean, it's pretty fascinating, um, I think, for a few different reasons, because I mean, like we all know wealth inequality is bad. I think (laughs) it goes without saying people don't like that. Um, Some people don't, at least, I guess. Some people are very, uh, I don't know, uh, will be apologists for Elon Musk until they die for whatever reason. Don't know why, but um, it's a conversation for another time. Anyway, so this article is, this report is kind of going through and just kind of looking at these like trends in uh, CEO pay uh, versus uh, worker pay, worker compensation. And it is pretty interesting. Um, I thought, though, uh, so there's a lot of data in here, and, and some of it, honestly, I'm not smart enough to understand, but a lot of it I am, which is nice. Um, but there's this one section towards the beginning that kind of encapsulates, I think, what's so interesting about this. So um, there's this little section that's titled, Why This Matters. I love that. I love when people, <laughs> I wish everyone would do that. And, and they, everything they write, no matter what it is, just say why it matters. So this is what it says. Exorbitant CEO pay is a major contributor to rising inequality that we could safely do away with. CEOs are getting more because their power to set pay and because so much of their pay, more than 80%, is stock related. Not because they are increasing their productivity or possess specific high demand skills. (laughs) This escalation of CEO compensation and of executive compensation more generally has fueled the growth of the top 1% and top 0.1% incomes, leaving less of the fruits of economic growth for ordinary workers and widening the gap between very high earners and the bottom 90%. The economy would suffer no harm if CEOs were paid less or were taxed more. Um, I appreciate the very the very based take in this one. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, but anyways, it's pretty it's a pretty good rationale for actually why this is important. Um, because I don't know, you'll see. I mean, I see. I don't know. Maybe maybe you don't. But my experience in social media is that uh, I don't know. I see stuff about inequality constantly. Um, I don't know, like the uh, the Chipotle CEO, his name is Brian Nickel. He's this guy. He makes like, I, I mean, a, a crazy amount of money a year. He's like, uh, as far as like fast food moguls go, he like makes, um, I mean, like he's the, he makes um, the biggest ratio above the workers of Chipotle. Like he makes, I don't know, a, a gazillion dollars. A year. It doesn't matter. Billions, right? Um, anyways, he makes so much more than his workers. And like, that's a thing. But I appreciate the framing of the rationale about why this matters. Because um, I think that is lost on people sometimes, right? Like, I think that the perspective, uh, the perspective of many might be that, like, well, CEOs they don't they don't deserve to make that much money, but they deserve to make more than like the average employee or whatever. But uh, I appreciate that this article does go out of its way to say, like, well, they don't actually really do anything. <laughs> you know, it's like it's yeah. not because that they have some kind of skill that nobody else t- has. They don't have any high demand skill or like specific um, quality or something. It's just that like they're able to set how much other people get paid. And also they have like um, they have access to like a ton of stocks and like, you know, trading and whatnot. So um, they have uh, a, another like this other sort of avenue for wealth. And I think it puts it in such an absurd light because like, this is clearly not a rational system, <laughs> you know, like um, I, 
I think that, uh, I mean, generally, the United States, there's a myth about meritocracy, right? That if you work really hard, you get paid more, and you have this kind of better life. And, like, clearly that's not true. Uh, it doesn't matter how hard you work because CEOs work, they don't have any skills that are particular, you know, the, the no high-demand skills, but they make all this money for basically no reason, right? They don't actually do the labor that creates the wealth. They're just the guys at the top that kind of get to say, these people get paid, you know, $8 an hour. Uh, whatever. So anyways, I found that um, the the data in the article is very interesting and helpful, but I feel like the the perceptual the, the conceptual handles that the article gives about why this is important is is nice. I like it. Yeah, that's cool. I do. I think what I love the most about the Economic Policy Institute is that it does just give you, I don't know, the basic kind of uh, data to back up all the things you already know. <laughs> you know, yeah. like uh, everybody knows that rich people make a lot of money and uh, you don't. And everybody also knows that they probably don't deserve it and that they don't do anything and so on. Uh, even conservatives, you know, get <laughs> pissed off at the the wealthy elites and, so, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's actually important to be able to say, and here's how they do it and what they do in order to do it. And this is why you, you don't have that much money because you don't have these same opportunities or practices or habits and, and so on. I mean, you can't set and, your own uh, pay, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. or you can't make yeah. sure that everyone else gets paid so little that you have, you know, huge overhead. Right. Right. But even the habits of like, uh, trading on the stock market, for sure. example, and stuff like that, like all that kind of stuff is, uh, it's not just a level of financial literacy. It's like a, an unattainable, uh, level of, um, financial opportunity that you will just not be given. Yeah, probably. Yeah, exactly. Um, and even so, even if you were, you, you know, you would have to spend a lot of time developing some kind of absurd skill set to make money for doing nothing. Essentially. I mean, the absurd yeah. skill set is like figuring out how to exploit somebody. Like that's it. That's the skill yeah. set that you have to right. have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, all that to say, I think uh, I love the EPI stuff just because it's like when somebody tells you, I don't know, rich people work hard for their money, you can just say, well, here's like a ton of data that shows now they do not. Yeah, for real. <laughs> um, all right. One last thing I'll add, and uh, then we'll let all of our um, youth group students go back home. Finally, uh, this is an article in this really neat theology journal called Perspectivas. Um, it is pretty cool. I don't know all the background behind it, but I've actually just kind of stumbled on it a handful of times looking for different things. So it must be cool because I keep finding what I want yeah. <laughs> in it by accident. Um, anyway, they do, uh, it's a bilingual journal and they focus a lot on Hispanic theology and it's just really quite fascinating. Um, they've published a bunch of cool stuff about the young Lords. That's how I first found about yeah, them, too. found out about them. Yeah, so uh, I found this other article just as I've been doing more research on Cuba, um, and it is called An Overview of Protestant Theology in Cuba During the Revolutionary Period by Reverend Dr. Ophelia Ortega, who is a uh, Cuban theologian herself. Um, it is what it sounds like. It is an overview <laughs> of uh, Protestantism in Cuba, uh, and it goes through kind of how theologians have made sense of uh the, the socialist revolution in that country and what that has meant for them theologically. Uh, it's maybe, you know, as an overview, it's perhaps not as in depth on this or that point. Uh, but the overview is really helpful too, because it just gives you an alternative picture for what Christianity looks like in Cuba. I think, uh, the way that Christianity gets talked about in Cuba is pretty much always, at least in my experience, uh, a matter of talking about repression, right? That these Christians are being repressed or these pastors are 
I don't know, being harassed and so on and so forth. And the impression that uh, Western media often wants to give you is that there's just no freedom of religion in Cuba. It's this authoritarian regime and so on. Um, that is just like blatantly not true. I'm here to tell you it, it is completely false. Uh, you know, not to say that, I don't know, maybe some Christians feel like they have a hard time. Fidel Castro said he felt that that was the case in Cuba back in the 80s. So I don't know who could say what it's like now. But uh, the story that says there's just no Christianity there and no Christianity that is actually on the side of the revolution is just false. Anyway, um, this is a good article that shows a little bit about it, but there's one passage in it that I think kind of just caught my attention and that I've been thinking about more. So uh, she says, after 1961, when the socialist nature of the revolution was announced and laws emerged depriving the church of its schools and other properties, uh, other events affected theological production. The unprecedented nature of the revolutionary process made it difficult to reflect on it. Only after some time had passed was the church able to acquire some training to theologize systematically. In addition, the United States of America economic embargo on Cuba, officially imposed in 1962, separated us from the world. This separation provoked a breaking with international civil and religious institutions. Um, so that's kind of like the stage that gets set for how Protestants engaged the revolution. And she goes on to say, as you might guess, that it was complicated. Um, a lot of Protestants left, but then other ones committed themselves to the revolutionary process. And the way she tells the story is interesting because I guess this should have seemed obvious to me, but it never made the connection. But it really parallels the experience of a lot of Christians, especially Protestants in other communist situations, like in the... Uh, uh, reaction to the revolution in China or during the Korean War. A lot of Protestants um, found themselves uh, taking the communist revolution also as an opportunity to really reflect on their own uh, Christianity, their own tradition, and whether or not it was truly their own, uh, a kind of indigenous form of Christianity, or whether it was a, a foreign, um, you know, plant that... Uh, uh, that they were still tied to, that it wasn't really theirs. It was a kind of colonial force. Um, so one thing she draws out further in the article is that uh, Cuban theologians have tried to think through what it means to be Cuban theologians, and uh, that has led them to all kinds of unique themes that she goes through too. But uh, the, the real key, I guess, is um, the article is a great kind of narrative of um, how Christianity in Cuba has become uh, a unique feature of the Cuban Revolution as well, and how important that is, at least to me, uh, in the face of, uh, you know, all kinds of stories about Christianity in Cuba that you would never guess that a story like this is actually <laughs> uh, a pretty significant one on the island. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, sometime on the podcast, but there was a meeting with President Diaz-Canal and the Cuban uh, Council of Churches recently. Um, and uh, I mean, a whole lot of uh, a bunch of different uh, denominations and um, and groups were there present. And it's like this really interesting interchange. Um, meanwhile, like, you know, in the United States, like no one is like writing an article about it. No one's telling that story. And uh, I think it's really too bad. But it did. It did give me a moment to kind of reflect on my own my own denomination, and uh, I went and like did some digging about like what the Episcopal Church looks like in Cuba. And it turns out there's like a pretty sizable chunk of Episcopalians out there, which is so wild to me. Um, in like 2017, I think it was, there was 
they have like a uh, the statistic that there was like ten thousand Episcopalians in, in Cuba, which is a pretty sizable chunk of Protestants uh, for a, an island of eleven million people. Um, mm-hmm. So really fascinating. I mean, um, I think it's fascinating for a lot of different reasons. I mean, it makes me think about <laughs> what um, <clears throat> it makes me think about like what my congregation like actually looks like globally in like different contexts, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. But also, it does complicate the narrative that like you know everyone every journalist in the united states has been pushing that like you know there's no religious freedom and so on it just doesn't it, it doesn't add up right <laughs> we've we've heard from too many people now that there are these stories about uh about christians in Cuba where it, it seems like uh there's something else going on there yeah yeah well uh there you have it folks um you can go look up these articles yourself or not uh we're just your youth pastors we're not your uh your dads so um we can't make you do that but uh, usually at this time of the podcast, we start talking about how your parents have uh, arrived. They drove here. I guess that means that this sermon always takes place at the very end of the night um, or in some kind of time warp. I don't know. It's hard to tell. <laughs> uh, but your parents are here to pick you up and uh, you have to drag your stinky clothes that you're wearing <laughs> on your on your body uh, outside of this place uh, covered in cheese dust and pizza grease and uh, get yourself cleaned up for your day at school tomorrow and we'll see you all again next week in the lock-in behind the patreon paywall uh, we hope you have a good week I don't want to get up at church in the morning church in the morning souls alive Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, 